Hello and welcome to another interview from the Journal of the History of Ideas podcast. I'm Simon Brown, a PhD candidate in history at UC Berkeley, and I'm speaking with Michael Carhart, a professor of history at Old Dominion University, about his new book, Leibniz Discovers Asia, Social Networking in the Republic of Letters, from Johns Hopkins University Press. The book follows the philosopher Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz as he constructs a wide-ranging correspondence network from Germany to China beginning in the 1690s in order to gather information for an ambitious inquiry into the history of European societies through research in languages spanning both continents. In the interview, we talk about scholarship and court politics, the science of culture in the 18th century, and ethnic identity today. I want to start by asking how you came to the project. Your first book focused on the science of culture in late 18th century Germany, which you see addressing many questions that you also find earlier in Leibniz over the way to distinguish human societies from one another through history. And we'll talk maybe more about those a little bit later. But can you tell us what led you back in time to focus on Leibniz in this book? So Leibniz discovers Asia is kind of part of what is turning into I don't know if it's going to be a trilogy of research monographs um, on Europe's own self-identity in the 17th, 18th, and early 19th centuries. And Europe's understanding of its place in human history as a civilization, uh, and also just generally, uh, who are we in the entire cosmos? So the organizing principle has been even from since before I finished the science of culture, the question, my question was, how did so-called white people come to be called Caucasian of all the crazy misnomers? So um, in my dissertation, I'd written a little bit about this, this Caucasian hypothesis that was advanced at Göttingen, uh, both in Blumenbach's physical anthropology, and also in Christoph Miners's cultural ethnology. The Blumenbach material is not very well documented. Uh, scholars have kind of wrung everything out of the archives that they can get, and yet we can't see into Blumenbach's mind. So I ended up setting that aside. Uh, and in the science of culture, the last few chapters I dug into Christoph Miners, kind of the first chapters set up uh, sort of the the questions about social processes and development. But then I wanted to understand how this, this terribly bigoted person with these horribly ugly opinions that he was very articulate in expressing, what was he afraid of? So I kind of, I kind of got that figured out toward the end of the science of culture. So, um, the reason I went back to Leibniz is because, Ever since the about miners in Blumenbach's age, kind of the late 18th century into the 19th century, and even down to the present, linguists have and ethnographers or ethnologists have been pointing to Leibniz as a founding figure in their discipline. So at one point, I was on a, a little summer research fellowship in Göttingen uh, working on kind of a segue from the science of culture into the next project, this thing on how did white people come to be called Caucasian. And right outside um, my study carol in the Göttingen library was the Leibniz edition. And so I started rummaging around and before I knew it, two weeks were gone. So it was just this rich 
kind of rabbit hole that when you follow the March Hare down there, an entire world opens up. So in order not to derail that summer project, it's set the live notes aside. And then it was a couple of years later that I, I came back to it and dug in. Quite frankly, the Leibniz book is, and I didn't say, I did not set out to write it. Uh, it kind of happened accidentally. I knew I had to deal with Leibniz, but Leibniz is going to be like part of chapter two of that other book. But when I got into it, simply trying to figure out what he was trying to do with his historical linguistics and with his inquiry into European origins and migrations, uh, it quickly outgrew the chapter. It became a couple of journal articles, maybe a series of them, maybe a highly technical one. And then finally, after six months or so, I just gave in and let it become what it wanted to be all along, which is a book in its own right. Yeah, and it seems like reading the book that you had this massive archive of Leibniz's own correspondence and his own writings to draw from. And it sounds like the compilation of that correspondence is almost a history in itself. Can you just talk a little bit about what the Leibniz correspondence archive looks like, um, how it developed, and how you came to work with it? Yeah, that's an excellent question because um, that is the key to the entire project, and it's the reason that I did the project. So um, in, in 1923, a formal project was undertaken by the Berlin Academy of Sciences of publishing Leibniz's, uh, his entire Nachlass, so all the collected papers and writings. Um, and um, so Leibniz was a meticulous record keeper. He was privileged in, uh, at the court of Hanover in that they provided him with a secretary. So when he wrote a letter, uh, most of the time he would dictate the letter to his secretary. The secretary would take it down, um, a rough form, give the rough copy to Leibniz. Leibniz would then go over it with a pen, make corrections, phrasings the way that he wanted, insert this, remove that. Uh, and then he would hand it back to the secretary the secretary would then draw up a fair copy, and that fair copy then got mailed away to the recipient. Uh, those fair copies, most of them are lost. However, the draft Leibniz put in his files. And when he got a response from his recipient, that also went in the file. So he had a separate file folder for each of his many correspondence. Um, and consequently, we're in the rare position of having someone in the 1690s for whom we have both sides of the correspondence, both the responses he got and also the, uh, the things that he sent out. And so, um, so they started uh, publishing this in uh, 1923. It went very slowly through most of the 20th century with uh, the war and then uh, the Cold War. But then after uh, 1989, and especially after 1991 with German reunification, uh, Leibniz, so this project being based in Berlin, uh, became a point on which scholars from East Germany and West Germany could come together. So the uh, Deutsche Forschungsgemeinschaft poured money into the Berlin Brandenburg Academy of Sciences in order to support this project. And they've got uh, several e full-time editorial teams now, and they are just cranking through material. So most of the material that 
I use, my book is set in the 1690s. Uh, most of the letters from the 1690s were published uh, during the 1990s. Uh, and by now, 2019, they're up to about 1707 or 1708. Leibniz lived till 1716. So I think during my career, they will make it to the end. Um, but they're still working on it. Uh, so it's volume, volumes and volumes of letters. I think 20, 20 plus volumes just in the general correspondence alone. And then there are other series. So there is the philosophical correspondence is uh series two, um, and then historicals, some historical stuff is in series four, but they've got an entire series coming out uh, that is dedicated just to history. There, they have not even There is yet. so much work that can be done with this. And so some of this was an exercise for me in trying to figure out, all right, so this academy has done the effort to put this scholarship together and make it available. So what can be done with it? So it's like this, it's this great database. Um, and typically what I see is that instead of reading it systematically, people kind of mine it for a good quotation here or there. Um, but I really wanted to go through, so what I did is I went through chronologically and I watched his project develop. I watched uh, how in 1691, he uh, came up with a concept of what he wanted to do in the first place, uh, how he... Uh, articulated it through various drafts, and then how he started writing letters to um, first local correspondents, uh, people that he knew from down in Italy when he had traveled there uh, in the late 1680s, um, and then how he kind of built this network of correspondence. Um, he wrote he wrote somewhere between 15,000 and 20,000 letters. Nobody even knows how many. Yeah, like, I guess that's one place that we could start the story is where you start the story is that initial there's initial trips of his to Italy. As you described, he worked at the court of Hanover and the projects that eventually led him to think about the languages of Asia and to think about his correspondence network there really begin with a political mission on the part of one political dynasty. Can you talk a little bit about how this effort to produce scholarship that could support the claims of uh, the political dynasty for which he worked eventually spin out into a more, a more scholarly project and how Leibniz wanted to maintain it as a scholarly project? Yeah. So, um, Leibniz's task, uh, beginning in 1685, was to write a genealogy of the House of Braunschweig-Lüneburg. Uh, the House of Braunschweig was an old medieval dynasty. They had uh, at one point been the Holy Roman Emperors, even. Well, well they had one Holy Roman Emperor in their family. Uh, subsequently, the family split into a Wolfenbüttel branch and a Lüneburg branch. Leibniz worked for the Lüneburg branch. Their capital, one of their capitals was uh, in the city of Hanover. The goal uh, of, the of the Lüneburg branch was uh, they wanted to be elevated in the Holy Roman Empire to the rank of elector. The, um, the principality of Brandenburg had recently achieved that status. And so at the time there were eight electors and Hanover wanted to be a ninth elector. So uh, they had 
through um, marriage and inheritance. They had consolidated uh, most of the little smaller territories within the duchy into the hands of one person. Um, and so that person held political power, but everybody knows that power can be fleeting. So Leibniz's task was to demonstrate the ancient dignity of this noble house and to show that it was worthy of permanent electoral status. And so he's going to do that genealogically using medieval documents. So they actually paid for him to go on an extended research trip down to southern Germany and to Italy, where Leibniz figured out the exact connection between the house of Welf, as uh, it was known in the Middle Ages, and uh, the house of Esta in northern Italy. Uh, and he went down there, succeeded in finding the marriage, and then he had to puzzle out, all right, so after this marriage and the dynasty was established in 1035-ish or something, um, well, what what had, you know, what it had done and who had been whom uh, in the Middle Ages. Now, he has an international reputation already as a scholar. On, so by education and training, he is a lawyer. By avocation, he is a mathematician. By this point, he has already written his little article on the infinitesimal calculus. So he's got an international reputation. Now, here he's being asked by his employer to write a genealogy of his own employer. So he's going to look like you know some fawning sycophant if he does this. He doesn't want to do that. So he figures out a way to turn this into a real work of scholarship. And so he in, he's going to append two preliminary dissertations to this genealogy of the House of Velf. Dissertation number one is about the land where the Velfs ruled. That is to say, the land of Lower Saxony. This is going to be a geohistory. Uh, this one he actually completed. It is called Proto-Gaia. Uh, Proto-Gaia has recently been published in Facing Page Translation, Latin and English by um, Claudine Cohen and Andre Wakefield. It's like University of Chicago 2007-ish or something. Um, and uh, that is drawn from Leibniz's work prior to becoming a genealogist when he was in charge of the Hanoverian mines in the Hartz Mountains. So it's about Lower Saxony and how geologically uh, – in prehistoric times, it came to take the shape that it now has. So how did the fish get stuck into the mountains far from the ocean? Questions like that. Um, so preliminary dissertation number one is about the land of Lower Saxony. Preliminary dissertation number two is about who is it that the Welfs rule? That is to say, the people of Lower Saxony. Who are the Lower Saxons and where did they come from? Because everybody kind of understands that the Europeans are not indigenous to Europe. Instead, they migrated in from somewhere. But the problem is that by the time we of the Greco-Roman geographers and historians, the Germanic tribes in Europe are already in place. So that is to say, Leibniz needs to find a way to get into the prehistoric era in order to get back to the origins of the Germanic peoples of Europe. And his technique for doing this is going to be through language. And so Leibniz, when he starts on this path to writing about the history of peoples through the history of language, he's certainly not the first person to write about the history of language or to speculate maybe about the history of language. There's a whole history of people before him. The colorful example being Gropius uh, that I'm familiar with, and you talk yep. a little bit about. 
So how is Leibniz's research method and how are his thoughts about the connection between language and history different from these predecessors? So that's a great question. Um, one of the things that uh, tends to happen in, um, in intellectual history or in, in history of ideas, the way that it's been done, um, is that we historians sometimes think kind of in terms of periodization. So like in the 16th century, Goropius did it this way. In the 17th century, other people did it that way. Um, so the ways are, with Goropius, he's doing it through etymology. Uh, and cognate letters, there is a system of how uh, vowels can uh, change from one to another, how consonants uh, can refer to one another. Uh, and so words that sound this way in French, for example, sound that way in English. Uh, so that's, that's one way of doing it, is through etymological comparison. Another project that is going on at the same time as Leibniz is working, and uh, long before, is uh, what some historians have referred to as the mosaic ethnology. That is to say, the, um, the history of humankind as told in the book of Genesis by Moses. So Genesis tells, has three creation stories. First, there's Adam and Eve in the garden. Then there is Noah and the flood, and that functions kind of as a second creation since everybody else is wiped out and all that's left is Noah's family. And then the third creation is uh, happens at Babel, when uh, everybody's there together in the plain of Shinar. They build the temple or the tower uh, and find themselves scattered uh, around the world. And so maybe, maybe the scattering accounts for human diversity. So there's a... Complete apparatus about how the Celts are descended from Gomer. The Germans are descended from Ashkenaz. Both Gomer and Ashkenaz are the sons of Japhet, who is the son of Noah. So these are grandsons of Noah. Uh, and in this way, functionally, um, you get a monogenist argument where everybody is ultimately related to everybody else uh, through this first family. But then the scattering and all that stuff happens. These two methods for Leibniz are inadequate. He is not persuaded by etymology, and he is certainly not persuaded by this biblical anthropology. So he is functionally more of an empiricist. And so what he is looking for is language samples of living nations, Languages that are actually now spoken out there in Central Asia. And what he wants to do is to get a standard language sample from many different languages, and then he will compare the actual terms that are used, try to puzzle out the relationships between the languages. That then will give him the relationships between the nations, and then he can compare those Central Asian languages to the languages of uh, both uh, ancient Europe, so ancient Germanic, as well as modern Germanic. So, for example, uh, it is known that there were Germanic cognates in the Persian language. What did this mean? So one of the reasons that, um, that linguists look to Leibniz as a founder of their discipline, whereas they don't look to Goropius, for example, uh, is because of Leibniz's methodology. Uh, and so he has 
two types of language samples that he's looking for. One is the Lord's Prayer. Uh, so just, he says to correspondence over and over again, just get me the Lord's Prayer uh, in a language, uh, have a translation of it into some other known language. He doesn't care what the language is. It can be Latin, it can be Russian, it can be uh, Greek. Uh, he doesn't care because he's got dictionaries. He can, he can look up the terms himself. So, but it needs to be a literal translation so that he can see what the uh, indigenous words are with uh, the words in the language that he knows or can know. So this is all fine. And, and the Lord's Prayer, uh, so there's been a project of collecting Lord's Prayers in Europe. Uh, it actually starts even before Christopher Columbus. By Leibniz's day, there were about 100 Lord's Prayers in different languages that had been collected, and now he wants more of them. Uh, by the early 19th century, they're going to have 500 Lord's Prayers, and they can kind of do a, a world tour of languages through the Lord's mm -hmm. Prayer. But uh, so this is all well and good, except so it, and it's got a pretty good vocabulary. It has the words our and father and to be heaven or sky. Um, so and, and all those other things to forgive, to tempt, uh, to give bread, day, daily, uh, that kind of stuff. And that actually leads me to wonder, because the Lord's Prayer was such a, an interesting precondition, in a way, for this kind of research, that it re the research relied on the pervasiveness of something like the Lord's Prayer and the spread of, of Christianity, and mm -hmm. Leibniz's correspondence so heavily depended on Jesuits and on Catholic correspondence when he himself and presumably much of his audience would have been Protestants. So yeah. I do wonder what the what that might tell us about correspondence across denominations or across religions at a time of religious division in this kind of correspondence network. I mean, to what extent did this pose a problem? Was there friction? And to what extent was the correspondence itself in the research project a kind of opportunity for irenic looking over of religious differences? So in chapter, I think it's chapter six, it's the chapter on Novissima Sinica. Uh, Leibniz is balancing two competing sets of correspondence very carefully. One is the Jesuits. And another is a group that he's in touch with uh, of Protestants in Berlin. Um, and then other Protestants uh, generally who he is talking to about the work and access that he has with the Jesuits. And he says uh, specifically to uh, one of his correspondents, I always handle these gentlemen very carefully. So because he does not want to alienate them in any way because they are his access to knowledge. And although he is a, a staunch Protestant of real Protestant convictions, um, he, uh, he toyed with the idea of moving to Paris. Um, he had been invited on a couple of occasions, uh, but the con co condition of converting to Catholicism in order to become a French citizen, uh, that was always a deal killer for him. So even though intellectually his life in Paris would have been much better. Um, so, so yeah, so he is, he's definitely a Protestant of conviction. And yet here he is in close touch um, with 
these uh, Jesuits who are quite frankly militant Catholics. You know, the Jesuit order is is on the the staunchly Catholic end, not really interested in uh, compromise with Protestants, and in fact, they they exist uh, in order to bring the Protestants into Catholicism, not to you know kind of make compromises with them, and yet they're able to come to an understanding. Um, so Leibniz understands that he needs them. Oh, here's how he gets the attention of the Jesuits. It's through mathematics. So Leibniz is a mathematician of renown, and that opens doors for him. And there was a small set of Jesuits who also dabbled in mathematics, kind of in their, in their spare time. So one Jesuit in uh, Warsaw, for example, Adam Kochansky, uh, Leibniz learned a lot about language from Kochansky. Uh, Kochansky was an amateur mathematician, in addition to being the court theologian at uh, the Polish court. Uh, so their correspondence started off on mathematics, and then, and then it turns toward language and European origins and migrations. That's interesting because it suggests that there are these kind of opportunities in the scholarly world of this kind of correspondence, whether it be in the linguistic research or in the mathematics, that at least allow the possibility of these connections across otherwise conflicted religious orders and, and theological denominations. So it seems like that, yeah. that distance from China and the re- necessity of relying on these these intermediaries kind of brings people together that perhaps they otherwise wouldn't have. Yeah, and again, so with this um, this interest in European origins and migrations, and and therefore also the languages, um, he's very cautious about this. And this is one of the reasons that this project has not been identified by historians before. For one thing, uh, it's not until now that we have enough of the correspondence published that you can. F- page through it chronologically and then see just how expansive and uh, enduring this project of Leibniz's was. But on the other hand, the way that he put it in the letters is is not going to draw your attention to it unless you go out looking for it. So when he writes to a Jesuit, say, um, he writes, you know, two, three paragraphs about mathematics. And then only at the end of the letter does he have a paragraph uh, expressing, hey, by the way, while you're out there traveling, if you go through any of these places, would you kindly translate the Lord's Prayer into their language and send me a copy? Mm-hmm. So he really does this as kind of an afterthought because he understands that nobody gets what it is that he's doing. And he doesn't really have space to explain it. Uh, they may not buy it in the first place. So for the, it seems to be just kind of a curiosity. And several of his correspondents who should have known what he was up to, or at least it would seem to me that they ought to know what he was up to. Uh, in fact, they send him things uh, that that indicate that they had they had no conception of what he was doing and why he was after it. Hmm. For example, he gets um, from Nicholas Witzen in Amsterdam, who was a ranking. He was a board member of the Dutch East Indies Company, had been mayor several times of Amsterdam, so he's a an important person uh, politically in Amsterdam. And uh, because of his uh, location in the East Indies Company, Witzen has access to the archives. So at one point, Witzen sends Leibniz a Lord's Prayer of the Hottentot language of Southern Africa. So 
but Leibniz has he has no interest in African languages. So although although he's looking, you know, so his project is as expansive as Asia is wide. But it's only about Asia. Uh, he knows that. And so the the point is to figure out. So who are the Lower Saxons? Where did they come from? Such that they ended up where they are and being ruled by the this Welf dynasty. Um, Hottentots, irrelevant. But Vincent didn't understand what it was exactly he was looking for. He thought Leibniz was just collecting. You know, I'm I'm collecting Lord spirits from around the world. No, no, not at all. He actually has a specific purpose for it. That's interesting. So is, is that one way that you could think about a difference maybe between someone like Leibniz and the later theorists and anthropologists of language in, say, the later 18th century, that Leibniz really is focused on one, one group's history and one kind of nation's history? And even though that takes him very far afield, it is ultimately to study one nation, whereas maybe later on, you would get people who have more global aspirations to study the history of language and the history of peoples all over, whether it be in Africa or or any place like that. Yeah, so by the 1810s, uh, is it a Grimm or is it a Humboldt? I can't remember which. Hmm does a three-volume work on the Austronesian language of the South Pacific, so Malay, uh, and that a language which is clearly in no way related to the languages of Europe. So there now, then we have a truly global interest. Um, But this doesn't happen until the early 19th century. Well, I don't know if I can say that categorically. But here's what happens in the early 19th century really to transform things. Uh, and that is when the full apparatus of European imperialism moves in and you get European administrators permanently on site uh, in outposts around the world, such that uh, they are then collaborating with the, the indigenous peoples uh, and consequently have to find a way to communicate with them. And so they learn their languages. That's when they begin to look at language structure. Like uh, that's when we finally get a comparative grammar. So 1810s is when you get Franz Bopp, uh, his comparative grammar of um, Sanskrit uh, and uh, Greek and Latin. Uh, you've already, we've already got uh, Sir William Jones. Uh, he's in India already in the 1780s. Uh, the English are a little bit early on this. Um, so, but, but, yeah, but you need people there. So Leibniz's problem, maybe I should say, this uh, this project of European origins and migrations, it fails. That genealogy of the wealth dynasty never finished. Well, it was sort of finished, and it was sort of published around 1850. Um, but what derailed the thing was this second preliminary dissertation. He could not get the data that he wanted because nobody could get out there to Central Asia to get him the language samples he needed. And if they could get out there, uh, these Jesuits were typically frequently traveling incognito, have to disguise their identity. They're not supposed to be there. So the last thing they want to do is to out themselves as Christians and start translating religious texts into the local languages. So he can't, he's trying, he knows what data he wants, but he really can't get it. And 19th century is different, then they can get it. And that leads me to wonder, because throughout the book, one 
kind of connection I kept noticing was the relationship between some of these language research projects, particularly from Leibniz, the relationship between those and the new, that at the time, new kinds of scholarly academies that were being formed, new media through which people like Leibniz might correspond and interact with other people, whether they be Jesuits, whether they be other Protestant correspondents, in the form of these academies, like the Academy in Berlin and the Academy in St. Petersburg, which he himself advocates uh, to the czar. So I was wondering if you can talk about how these academies, including the Academy in Berlin, which I was interested to learn his writing about language was the first publication ever of their of their journal, yeah. Um, yeah, kind of how those academies might have solved some of the problems of correspondence and the and distance that Leibniz ran into, and how they emerged out of the experience of having to deal with these kinds of correspondences. I think that the reason we have such a rich archive of Leibniz's letters is because he was so isolated in Hanover and did not have an academy. Hmm. He'd had an academy where he could go, you know, weekly or monthly or however often uh, and meet face to face with people. Um, he would not have put all of these uh, thoughts and needs into his letters. He just he wouldn't have needed to write the letters. So it's because of his isolation, I think, that we have such a rich archive. Uh, in fact, uh, interestingly, there's one character who I became very interested in a secretary in Berlin named Johann Jakob Julius Kuno. So JJJ Kuno. Leibniz and Kuno are writing letters back and forth. They were like two dozen letters in, in five, six months or something. Hmm. And then, and then Kuno is part of an entourage that comes to Hanover. Leibniz and Kuno meet and they speak for the first time. And then the letters stop. They don't absolutely stop. I mean, they continue to write, but it doesn't have nearly the, the vitality that it had when they were uh, only in virtual contact with each other. So uh, on the one hand, yeah, he would have accomplished a lot more. It would have been easier to get the data he was looking for, or it would have been able to get other kinds of data that would have got him close enough to answering the questions uh, that he was after. Um, and, uh, but, but that would, that would have transformed the entire configuration of, uh, his scholarly life, uh, probably even his research projects. Mm-hmm. So I don't think he would have been doing the wealth genealogy if he'd been a member of like, you know, if he'd been in certainly in Paris mm-hmm. or at the Royal Society in London. And so with things like the, the the publication of some of his discussions and some of his research on, on language, it's very clear, as you've described, how the anthropologists and linguists of the late 18th and early 19th century responded to and embraced Leibniz as a predecessor. Is it the case that Leibniz had contemporaries in the later end of the 17th and early 18th century who took his linguistic research and, and made something of it of their own of it? Did they respond to it? Did it start the kinds of debates or elicit the kind of interest among the general scholarly world um, that it would later on? Okay, so on the one hand, uh, in terms of the Hanoverian court, uh, at the end of his life, Leibniz was uh, badly isolated. 
So isolated on personal and individual level. Uh, the Hanoverians up and went to London to take the throne of England, and Leibniz did not go along. He was uh, told to stay home and finish this project. Um, and frankly, he was out of date. So this was a, another generation. Um, you know, it's kind of like uh, it's like it's like the millennials get the throne, and they don't want this old-fashioned, stodgy baby boomer going along with them. They've got their own program going. <laughs> Um, so kind of the end of his life is, is, is sort of, is sad, I think, personally, that's quite unfortunate. Now with the linguistics project, um, a former secretary or student of his named, uh, Eckhart, uh, had been collaborating on some of this Leibniz and Eckhart also kind of on a personal level had a bit of a, a falling out. Uh, but nevertheless, um, when Leibniz was gone, Eckhart got a hold of his notes, and Eckhart continued to work on this question of U Germanic origins and migrations and languages down to Eckhart's own death 15 years later in the year 1730. Um, but Eckhart also didn't have it well enough nailed down that he felt like he could publish it. So it was only in manuscript. Uh, Eckhart's version, now much expanded from what Leibniz came up with, uh, of this second preliminary dissertation, that was finally published in the 1750s um, in, a, in an edition at Göttingen. So when Leibniz was around, Göttingen did not, did not have a university. Um, when Eckhart died, Göttingen still was not a university, uh, but kind of the end of the first generation of Göttingen faculty uh, went back and started to go through some of Leibniz's stuff, pull it out and, and publish it. But then, then things happen. Then it's the, the Seven Years' War starts. Uh, Hanover gets invaded by France because, of course, England is the enemy of France. And so the easiest way to get England is to take their continental territory. So Göttingen is under occupation. Publication uh, stops and stuff until the dust settles in, in the 1760s. Then it's in the 1760s uh, that that there's kind of a Leibniz renaissance, mm -hmm. uh, and and then then he becomes a big deal, and he's been a big deal ever since. Well, that's uh, a good conclusion to the chronological story you've told about Leibniz and his immediate life and his immediate legacy. So we've covered a lot of geographic and chronological ground so far, um, and I was wondering before we finish, if you could talk about the next part of this research project that you described on the way Europeans come to think of themselves as such. Uh, this was one part of it. Uh, and what are you working on toward it now? So at this point, my research is kind of at a crossroads. I could either go back to the Caucasians as kind of a sequel to Leibniz Discovers Asia, or I could write a prequel um, and currently the working title of that is called Goths, Celts, and Scythians. And the subtitle is Identity Politics in Early Modern Europe. Hmm. So um, I, the, my question is, why did they concoct these, these mythologies about being descended from the sons of Noah or from refugees of Troy? or from Homeric barbarians like the Scythians. That was Leibniz's hypothesis, that the, the Germanic peoples of Europe were descended from the ancient nomadic Scythians. So uh, these, um, 
theories that have uh, patently no reality in the, at least as the way we understand um, the, you know, the prehistoric human past. Uh, nevertheless, they're very important to them. And so my suspicion is that the fears and concerns of Europeans 400 years ago were not so different from the status threats behind some kinds of right-wing nationalism that's sweeping Europe and the United States today. So there's this myth that there is a national core, an original core to the nation, whether it's Trojan refugees, uh, descendants of Gomer, um, the Scythians. So this is the national core. But then over time, obviously, uh, well documented, all kinds of other groups have been accreted on to the core population. Um, but the way we understand it now, anthropologically, is that there has never been any core population. The Scythians were never any kind of like a, a pure or original group. They themselves would have been a, a confederation of many different types. Um, and so it's kind of like, like peeling an onion where you just go through layer after layer after layer and there is no core down there. Uh, but in the 17th century and the 16th century and the 18th century and the 21st century, people are very interested in finding this national core. So I'm thinking uh, I might go back and, and say, you know, and show the way this played out in 17th century studies uh, or investigations of national origins, um, which if it turns out to be in any way analogous to what's going on now with uh, kind of far-right populism, uh, it means that that movement is going to be with us for a very long time. Yeah, and that's a fascinating connection. So I'll be very excited to hopefully talk to you more about that after you've done more work on the project. And thank you so much for joining us and for talking about the book. Yeah, thanks for having me, Simon.